Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. We have uh, our topic today is the brain. Mine doesn't seem to be working very well as we start the show. Uh, Our guest is Dr. Jill Taylor, who's a neuroanatomist at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Jill, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for being here. We're going to – many of you may have read about Jill in our newspaper. We've had stories about her or or heard about her in some other way. But if you haven't, I hope you'll you'll stick with us for the big surprise, which is coming up in about 10 minutes. Um, How did you get interested in this? When I was a little girl, I had two older brothers, and one of them was very different from me in the way he interacted with everyone, in the the kinds of stories he told, in the way he perceived experience, in the way he behaved around adults. And so I became fascinated at a very early age about about the differences between people. And, you know, when you're only five, six, seven years old, you don't have any perception or any understanding that, that someone could have a brain that is actually not normal because you don't know what normal or not normal is. All you understand is that that someone is different from you. So I recognized that my brother was very different. Uh, it wasn't until um, uh, he was in his early 30s, I was in my late 20s, that he was actually diagnosed with a brain disorder, schizophrenia. Uh, my family is a quite eccentric family. So, you know, drawing that line between what is normal eccentricity and what is truly abnormal psychiatric problem, uh, as, a, as a family that wasn't versed in, in that, we didn't really understand the difference mm-hmm. until it, it became um, uh, obvious. Now, now, people may know, you, you mentioned your family, so I'll mention yeah. your father, Hal. Yeah, Hal Taylor. Yeah, he works, uh, does a lot of things with the Monroe County Jail. And, yes. Now, did you grow up here in Bloomington? I grew up in Terre Haute. In Terre Haute. Yeah, and so, then I went to school here for undergraduate yeah. school. We have a lot of listeners in Terre Haute, too. We, yes. You know, so, so people will know you over there. Yes. Um, so, then you went to you went to IU for undergraduate, and then yes. then you went on to then I went back to ISU in Terre Haute and got my PhD at the IU at the Terre Haute Center for Medical Education in conjunction with ISU. It's a mm-hmm. you know the IU School of Medicine has eight satellite centers all around the state. One of them is in Terre Haute. It was a, a wonderful opportunity for me to be at the Terre Haute Center. We had sixteen of the first and second year medical students, and so all of my academic was actually the first and second year medical courses with the medical students, and then my teaching expertise was at the medical school there. So uh, I was very fortunate to get a, an excellent medical education, but really through ISU. Mm-hmm. So then did you go to Harvard after that? Uh, after that, I, I went to uh, – did my postdoctoral degree. In, in neuroscience, neuroanatomy, you have to do postdoctoral training. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the Harvard Department of Neurobiology for two years and worked um, – uh, in the world of David Hubel, who is a Nobel laureate for vision. Uh, and then I spent uh, – then I left there and went to the Harvard Department of Psychiatry because I wanted to focus my research on the postmortem investigation of the brain as it relates to schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was very fortunate to work with Dr. Francine Bennis uh, for five years. Mm-hmm. So did you – when you were doing all this, did you sort of have your brother in mind? You really wanted to figure out what was going on with him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I It was a question of how can I utilize my skills and help someone like my my brother, people who have these brain disorders, and I'm I'm much more hands-on. I uh, I like dissection, so I love the brain. The brain's a beautiful thing. Teaching gross anatomy, teaching about the brain is a beautiful thing. So it was just really a natural for me to pursue that, um, and and uh, so so that's how it all worked out. You didn't carry any brains in here with you today. Not right? today. Yeah. I didn't bring my bucket of brains. <laughs> I usually do. I know but you not do. On the radio. Standard issue for folks in your business: a bucket. I no brains. I have my bucket of brains. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful bucket, too, i got to tell you. All right. So now let's uh, sort of get to that sort yeah. of changing point in your life because you were working at Harvard. Right. This was about – this was in 1996. Right. Correct? Right. So – 
Why don't you just sort of tell the story? Okay. Well, um, um, at the time, I was also serving on the National Board of Directors for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So uh, personally, my research was very satisfying for me because it had personal meaning. I was a national advocate um, playing politics in, in D.C., very satisfying experience, just, just living large, having a great time, really making my dreams come true. And then on December 10, 1996, I woke up to discover that I had a brain disorder of my own. And within the course of four hours, I watched my brain completely deteriorate in its ability to process incoming information. I had a arteriovenous malformation, which is a congenital malformation of the blood vessels in my brain. I did not know that it was there. And it sprung a leak. And the hemorrhage took four hours to pretty much overcome my my consciousness and my ability to experience and understand my relationship to the external world. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, through the eyes of a curious neuroscientist, I thought it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was like, you you know, what a lesson. I I learned as much on that morning of that hemorrhage, watching my mind deteriorate moment by moment, ability by ability, as I had learned in all my academics. So it was really quite exciting from Mm -hmm. my perspective. (laughs) (laughs) As long as I live, everything was okay. Making lemonade out of lemons, but I think this takes yeah, the yeah. takes but the, the prize. So this is, I mean, commonly it's called it's a stroke. It's right? a stroke. It's, it's a, a rare stroke. form of stroke. And so it, it, you then, after those four hours, I mean, you yeah. could you couldn't walk, talk, read, write, recall Any anything of, of your life. Right? Did right. you self-diagnose as this was happening then? Um, not until it took me a while on the morning as I was losing mm-hmm. ability. Um, I was I kept analyzing and trying to figure out. Okay, I've lost this function. What part of my brain is having a problem? And it wasn't until my right arm went totally paralyzed and dropped by my side that I realized, oh my gosh, I'm having a stroke. Mm-hmm. So that was the the giveaway to me. And then from there on, I stopped worrying about the analysis and I moved into how do I orchestrate my rescue? How do I get help? And even though I could think consciously inside of my mind, I would float in and out of the ability to connect to the external world. Oh so I would shift into what I would call la-la land, which is a very blissful <laughs> euphoria experience of just being in the present moment. And then I'd go right back into what am I trying to do? Who am I? What's going on? Where am I at? What am I trying to do? And, and just keep anchoring myself back and forth uh, until I got help. So this is as you're trying to, what, call 911? Well, 911 was right, the the group of cells that understand 911 and numbers was right behind the language center. And the language center was right where the hemorrhage began. Uh So 911 didn't exist for me anymore. So that wasn't an option. I I lived in uh, an upstairs apartment. Downstairs, my landlady was home on maternity leave, but she didn't exist for me anymore. Otherwise, I could have just gone downstairs and said, please, take me me for help. But I couldn't speak. I was going to say, you lost by that too, point, I the didn't language. Have okay. Right. Yeah. So right. how did you get help? How did you get help? How yeah. did I get help? Yeah. You just have to read my book. <laughs> that was a perfect plug. That's no, right. <laughs> I, I did eventually. Um, I, I, kept, I kept myself. Fortunately, um, my left hemisphere kept me on task enough so that I kept coming back, coming back, coming back to what am I doing? What's my process? What do I need to do? And, and I had one plan, and that was to call work. And I worked at the Harvard Brain Bank at that time, and the number there was 1-800-BRAIN-BANK, um, and they called me the singing scientist, and I'd been singing for years, just dial 1-800-BRAIN-BANK for information, please, but that was gone, too. So eventually, I, I piled through, I went through a, a three-inch stack of business cards, and it took me literally 45 minutes to get an inch into that stack, because even though I could see clearly in my mind the Harvard Brain Bank with the little brain on the business card, so I knew I would identify it, when I looked at the cards, everything was pixelated, and I couldn't mm. distinguish language from the background, from any of the colors. It was just all pixels. So even though I could see clearly in my mind's eye what I was looking for, I could not distinguish that through my eyes in the, in the external world. So it took me 45 minutes to, to find the right card, and then I took that card, cleared everything else out of my mind, and, and I had, had for, the phone had been next to me the whole time. Uh, and by this point, I almost forgot what a phone was about 
about. But I realized that this entity was going to connect me from this reality to another reality where someone else was would be, hopefully, and they would get me help. And so I put the phone pad uh, on the desk, and I put the card right next to it, and I had to—I uh, matched the, the squiggles. By this point, I couldn't, didn't understand a number, but I could match the, the squiggle on the card to the squiggle on the phone, and I had to put my finger over the number that I had already dialed because I was so in the present moment and so going back off into la-la land over time that I, I, why, why, when I would have a wave of clarity and come back to this reality, I then knew where I was at mm-hmm. in the dialing process. So eventually I did dial. My colleague picked up the phone and he said, rur, 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 rur. and I thought, <laughs> oh my gosh, he sounds like a golden retriever. <laughs> I can't understand anything. But of course, I didn't know that I couldn't understand until someone spoke to me. And then I said, I tried to say in my mind's uh, I in my mind's voice, I said, this is Jill. I need help. And what came out for me was, rur, 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 rur. and I thought, oh my God, I sound like a golden retriever. And that was the beginning of, he, fortunately, he recognized me. And, um, uh, um, and then the process of, of them coming to help me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, let me tell our uh, listeners, our guest today is Dr. Jill Taylor, a neuroanatomist at Indiana University. Um, Jill, you know, I, we're gonna talk, we can talk about all sorts of things that have to do with the brain, but your story is so interesting mm-hmm. that we have to, you know, we have to, sure. to get into that. So how, what happened, um, what, was your, what was the diagnosis? I mean, when you, when you went to the hospital, what was the diagnosis? But before you answer that. Okay. I'm sorry. My brain is like really not working as well today as it normally does, at least I hope. But I want to talk about the book. I want to mention the book because you mentioned it. Um, But Jill has written a book called My Stroke of Insight. And it uh, is available anywhere, pretty much, right? It's available through the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lulu.com is the best place to get it. You can get it at Amazon.com. If you forget any of that, just Google Jill Mm -hmm. Bolte-Taylor or Dr. Jill Taylor, and I'll pop up, and it'll go to my website, and then then you can get there from there. But it's uh, 188 pages of— 188 pages. (laughs) Of insight. It is. (laughs) It's titled My Insight because, because, you know, it's a good story. Um, There's this woman with the— these credentials, and then this this experience happens. So I take you through moment by moment the, mor- the morning of the stroke. So you you are there. You are experiencing my stroke with me. Um, and then I take you into the recovery of what I needed. But there's this gap between ha- being completely me- mentally disabled. I mean, I had lost everything, and I was just in the moment, in the present moment. And it was I described myself as an infant in a woman's body at that point because all of this stimulation is coming through my senses, which I just sensed as pure chaos and pain. And I could escape that by shifting into the beauty and the presence of of the moment. And essentially, I had lost my physical boundaries. So there's a part of the brain in the left hemisphere that says, this is my skin. This is where I begin. This is where I end. These are the boundaries of what I am. And when you lose those cells, and I lost those cells, I shifted into this consciousness that I was as big as the universe. Well, who doesn't want to be as big as the universe? And it's quiet in there and it's peaceful in there and I lost all my emotional baggage. Imagine. I mean, people, you know, talk about, you know, what a bummer, man. You lost mm-hmm. your life. And it's like, well, yeah, part of that's a bummer. But part of it, it's like, imagine how freeing that is to be able to look out in the world with fresh new eyes, with no judgment on anyone or anything, and just see everything as this, this as yourself, as this magnificent collection of cells and life. And wow, I mean, it was so exciting. So so that was, was where it shifted me into. And then for recovery, I had to make the decision that, okay, I'm going to leave my euphoria. I'm going to be willing to come back into being a human being in the real world with all the the things that happen in the real world. And and there was a choice in there for me. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me is that you describe this as an actual conscious choice that you had to make. For me, it was a conscious – of course it was because just paying attention to looking out into the world and seeing a person, I could not distinguish the boundaries of that person from the wall around it. I could – because all 
I could see was energy, energy dynamic. And everything's made up of molecules and atoms moving in space. Some things are just more dense than others. And life force, of course, has its own expression of energy. So, so for me to make sense, just physical sense of the, of the world through my senses took a lot of effort. It took, and, and it was willing to focus in and try to define a boundary and try to understand. And people would speak to me and rah, 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 and they talked a million miles an hour. And I'm off in, in law la slow processing so i mean because i had all but died that morning and and so i was when i awoke after i finally got to mass general hospital in the beginning in the first few moments i was not pleased (laughs) to find out that i was still here because i had the awareness through the eyes of a scientist i watched my brain deteriorate i know i watched what had happened to my mind and i knew that my mind had this big hole in it and so i felt that the organic structure of my brain was no longer capable of giving me the same kind of quality of life that i had had so so yeah for me it was um uh, i i had some distress so you came back and it was like oh great now i have to deal with this well it was like what do i do with this? Ah. What do I do with this? And so for me, um, I had to shift the question from, okay, why do I have to go back? Because going back meant I was going to have to focus and I was going to have to go endure the pain. I was going to have to go through all the rehab and with no guarantee whatsoever that I would get anything back. I mean, that's that's the bottom line when you have an organic problem sure. versus, okay, I shift my perception from, okay, why did I get to come here? What is there about this experience through the eyes of me and all of my life story and all of my education? Here I am. I'm in this completely shifted reality. Hmm. What what gift is there here? And what, what have I learned? What can I learn here that I can then take back to society that might be of benefit from them so that they can share this experience but not have to have this hemorrhage or this this huge drama in order to, to ha- get that information. Yeah. All right. We, we're not going to have nearly enough time today. No. I can see that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but it went on. No, yeah. no, no. It, yeah. This is great. It went on. I mean, you – I have a caller I'm going to go to, but I just wanted to, to – explain before we leave this that it took you eight years? took me eight years to completely recover. Mm -hmm. And and I define my complete recovery, getting my language back. Um, I mean, I had to learn to walk, talk, read, write. My mother, bless her heart, Gigi Taylor in Terre Haute, Indiana. Uh, (laughs) She she was just a total deal. Uh, She she had to teach me a squiggle. This is a squiggle. This is an S. And it sounds like, and I would say, you know, that's a squiggle. And she would, you know, she very, she was just great. Uh, but it took that kind of attention to detail in order to, to have me recover. And then it was processed uh, step by step by step by step until it, by the eight-year mark, I felt like a solid again. I felt like a single, a solid, a, a normal human being. By that point, most of my mind, as far as I'm aware, of course, you know, people say, oh, it must have been terrible to lose your mind. And it's like, well, actually, you don't know what you've lost. It's not so bad. Uh, so, um, yeah. So, but it, it took eight, eight years. years. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's go to the phones. And Valerie. Valerie? Hello? Hi, Valerie. Yeah. Go right ahead. Yeah, what I'm hearing on the radio is different than what I'm hearing on the phone. Is that normal? Uh, yeah, you want to turn your radio yeah, down. Yeah, I know, but... <laughs> yeah, just go ahead and ask your question. We're, okay. We, we can hear you. All right. Um, my, okay. My question is... Um, my question is this, um, and I, I will preface it by saying that I also have a science background... And I understand if this is uh, something that might be a difficult question for your guest. But um, her description, your description of what you're experiencing through these changes in your brain is very reminiscent to me, who've been practicing various forms of meditation since 1969, of uh, descriptions of, you know, universal consciousness, expanded awareness. Um, Have you given this much thought? And if so, do you consider this... uh, experience in any way a spiritual experience? Uh, I love that question, Valerie. 
Um, absolutely. The the way that I look at the brain um, is really through the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere uh, communicates in language, the language centers. And because we can talk, we have linearity and we have a, a method to the way that we think in our left hemisphere. The right hemisphere, when I lost the left hemisphere and I lost all of my connection to those details mm. uh, and the ability to think in language, I shifted into the consciousness of my right hemisphere, which is all about right here, right now, and it thinks in pictures. So I, you're absolutely correct. In my opinion, what happened was when my left hemisphere shut down and the language centers became quiet, which is what you essentially achieve when you perform any kind of meditation, you replace the language that is the brain chatter in your brain that's just going on and on about the drama in your life with some kind of a mantra or some kind of a tone or some kind of a, of a, of a thinking pattern that shifts you then into the consciousness of the right hemisphere. And, and the true gift that I, regain, that I gained from this experience was in that consciousness of the right hemisphere. There's a deep inner peace deep inside of that hemisphere. And the, the secret, in my opinion, to getting there um, and the tools that you use are various forms of, of meditation, transcendental. It transcends you up beyond the consciousness of that left hemisphere, above the language center, above the brain chatter, above the, the part of me that says, I am a single, I am separate, I am a solid, into a, a more universal consciousness of the right hemisphere, which says we are one human family on this planet. And with that goes all of this positive intention towards what we are as humanity. So I, I appreciate your question, and, and I think you're absolutely right. So I encourage everyone to utilize these skills in order to, to whatever skills it takes for you to calm and quiet the language center of your, of your, your verbiage, the drama, the brain chatter in your left hemisphere, so that you can come back to the present moment and experience the beauty and the bliss of, of being a living being. All right. Let's go back to the phones. We have another call. It's Shelly this time. Shelly? Hi. Um, hi, Jill. This is Shelly Taylor. I, um, I tell you what, I'm a yoga instructor at IU. I'm a musician, and I, have, um, I do some alternative healing modalities. And I'm very interested. I just happened to be driving home and, and um, hear what you had to say. And actually, someone had sent me an email um, about your book earlier. But I'm very interested in, um, I work with essential oils, and I'm very interested in um, various kinds of alternative techniques that help um, a lot of brain things that fall under the autism realm. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just was wanting to connect with you, actually. That's why I called in. <laughs> You're not related, Shelley no. Taylor? No. <laughs> Well, Shelley, um, any any of those kinds of, of tools that you use, again, you're you're tuning people into the present moment. When you smell a fragrance, the the whole olfactory system goes directly into the cerebral cortex. There's really nothing more powerful. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. I right. Mean, it goes beyond. It goes right pat into the emotional part of the brain, which is why I'm so, and I, you know, I this is why I work with them now, and I've worked with them. Uh, a great deal on my own for my own healing. I myself have had um, several emergency situations um, or two in the hospital that kind of catapulted, catapulted me to, you know, a, a sort of a healing realm that, <laughs> you know, opened me up to a different mm -hmm. kind of a, an experience, you know, such as what you're saying. But, um, yeah, okay, so it sounds like you're familiar with the the essential oil work. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when, when, I, when I've been going through the journey, it's a matter of what tools are out there that I can capitalize on in order to help me define and redefine who I was, but define what, how do I stay? How do I keep this consciousness? Because I didn't want to compromise. I, I was willing to recover as long as I didn't have to give up my experience of euphoria or my ability to to connect to that part of me that gave me that peace. So it, it was a challenge along the way to figure out, okay, my, my language centers are coming back online, but what power do I give them and what choice do I have in focusing in on those particular circuits when I still want to be able to access the, the circuitry of my right hemisphere, which in a very busy society, as everyone knows, it's, it's much more difficult mm -hmm. to tap into that deep inner peace. 
Yes. Yeah. 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 So anyway, I just am calling to say I appreciate what you're saying and the research that you're doing, and um, I would love to talk to you further <laughs> at some time about the about the essential oils that I use and just other modalities, and because I I know that you have used those as as well, and you know just what you say about living in the present moment and things like that. So. All right, Shelley. Thanks for the call. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. I think uh, we'll take a break now, and then we'll come back. We've got a couple emails we're going to come back with, and it looks like uh, the phone may be ringing again. So we're talking with Dr. Jill Taylor today. She's a neuroanatomist at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. There's indoor and outdoor theater in our area with Pump Boys and Dinettes at the Brown County Playhouse, showtime at 8 o'clock, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, Sunday afternoon matinees at 3, Man of Tortuga at the Bloomington Playwrights Project, Thursdays through Saturdays at 8, Sunday afternoons at 2, and outdoors in 3rd Street Park, Monroe County Civic Theater presenting Anthony and Cleopatra tonight and Saturday at 7 p.m. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, Dr. Jill Taylor. She's a neuroanatomist at Indiana University and if you heard any of the first part of our show, you know that she uh, also had a stroke and lost uh, lost herself, basically lost mm-hmm. everything that she knew uh, about uh, 11 years ago. It took her eight years to recover mm-hmm. and we've been talking about her story. If you have questions for her or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And we should mention her book. Her, her book. My Stroke of Insight. My Stroke of Insight. And here's a, here's a uh, question that came in via email. It says, Dr. Jill, I appreciate your work and wonderful willingness to share your story from a very unique perspective as both brain scientist and brain trauma patient. I've heard you speak on the radio and in person and have read your read and savored your book. I have a burning question and would appreciate your insight. I'm wondering what the effect might be if, rather than left hemisphere brain trauma, the trauma occurred in the right hemisphere. Most specifically, what might be the perceptive experience of of such trauma. Although your recovery was hard work and took years, you had that transformative experience of unity, peace, and bliss, which gave you an entirely new perspective of reality. My peanut gallery suspects that right brain trauma might be hellish and raises the question of how brain function and spiritual experience are related. Thank you for your insight. Great question. Um, And thank you for for reading the book. (laughs) Um, uh, The peanut gallery is that language center. That's what I call it in in the book. Um, If you, because the right and the left hemispheres think very differently, the left hemisphere, again, thinks in language. It loves details. It categorizes, organizes. It looks at all the information in the the external world. It has a past. It has a present. It has a, a future. It has that ability to span time. The right hemisphere is all about the right here right now experience and in order to there are many books written about the right here right now experience um, the, the flow when mm-hmm. you get into the flow and you lose your consciousness of time you you experience really a, a lack of emotion not really even a positive emotion but you're so in, in, in involved in something that you're just doing it doing it doing it uh, all the time and, and time flies by for you being in that experience is kind of a, a spiritual experience mm-hmm. because you're doing something that that, that just just encapsulates you and uh, you you come at one with it and you're not worrying about all that other stuff in the world. Um, the, the individuals that I know who have spoken to me who have had right hemisphere uh, damage, um, the their biggest complaint um, is that they can't find God. 
they can't find God, because that ability to shift into the consciousness of those cells that take you into that euphoric experience, into that losing of the sense of self, that losing of time, this is these are cells. You have to remember that the human experience is a product of the cells that make up the brain that underlie the ability of that person to have that experience. So whatever we are capable of experiences, experiencing as a living being, whether it's the ability to recognize a face or the ability to understand a word or the ability to get lost in time, there are groups of cells inside of the brain that permit you that ability to do that. And so if you lose the structure of those cells, you do lose the function of those cells and the byproduct would be the perception and the experience. So that's that's been my awareness of individuals. I, I, I feel very fortunate, uh, actually, when, you know, people always call and say, you know, my loved one just had a stroke and I immediately ask what side of the body is mm-hmm. paralyzed or which hemisphere is, is has the hemorrhage happened in or the stroke. And, and you know, it's one thing to, to if they say the left hemisphere, then obvious things. You can't, uh, you, you lose language. You lose the ability to understand language. Uh, people make sounds and it means nothing. Um, your ability to, to understand and categorize and organize and do the details in your life. But you're shifted into a bigger picture. If the person has lost the right hemisphere, the the symptoms are not so obvious because they still can talk and they still mm-hmm. do have memory. And everybody's so elated because, oh, they still have all of these things. But but to me, what then, what abilities has that person no longer have the capacity for? So when I look at someone who has any kind of illness, I don't look just at what have they lost, but what have they gained? Because if you do lose left hemisphere, you've gained consciousness of right hemisphere. If you lose right hemisphere, then the left hemisphere and it is where all your focus is going to be. So, so it's very unique. It's very, very interesting which hemisphere has trauma. Mm-hmm. It's going to be different. Okay. Wow. Another email? Yes. Um, and this is kind of calling on your diagnostic skills, I guess. Um, it mm-hmm. says, when would you recommend or would you recommend an 83-year-old man come to see you or I assume someone else who does what you do? My father had a fender bender type car accident and the family is concerned about his driving ability. Do you do a brain scan normally on older people in this situation? You know, uh, the, the 83 is the real key because you have to think about the brain as a collection of cells. And frankly, um, modern medicine has really created uh, an, an abnormal situation for us as, as human beings. These cells weren't born thinking that they were going to live 80, 90, 100 years. So mm-hmm. it's, it's it, you know, it, you have a normal amount of, of degeneration that happens just because of the aging process. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, that's a tough one for, for me to answer. You don't, first of all, you don't want to come to me because... Um, uh, I'm postmortem, uh, so so you want to find a neurologist, uh, and there are many local neurologists who are, are very competent. And and if if he had an accident and it, and he had a head wound, then you definitely want to take him in and have him him uh, evaluated. Uh, frankly, I think it's a good thing to to go in regularly and have your brain scanned anyway. Um, but if you're concerned about driving skills, et cetera, then, then you know, um, there, there's a just – I have to say a lot of people think that Alzheimer is – everybody's getting Alzheimer. And Alzheimer is actually a disease that doesn't occur that often. You have Alzheimer-like symptoms that occur in the 70s, 80s, 90s. But uh, in order to be um, – uh, affirmed as Alzheimer, you have to have a pathology report, uh, which again isn't going to happen until after death. Um, so I think you're really probably looking at normal degeneration, and this is an issue that every family faces as, as we get older, as our parents get older. Let's go back for just a second to to the process of healing and how you actually regained uh, the skills that you regained. Was this we hear about synapses and right. and reestablishing or, or establishing new synapses or or I, I understand the brain doesn't really isn't doesn't have the capacity to actually regenerate itself once mm-hmm. once damaged in this fashion so how did you heal 
Um, I believed uh, in the ability of the first. I believed in the ability of my brain to recover itself. Um, I thought that if if anything knows what it needs, my brain needs it. And my my mother uh, went against all normal conventional rehabilitation, and she let me sleep as much as I wanted to sleep. Um, it was her philosophy that if my brain was screaming, "I need sleep," then she could tell that if I was awake, I wasn't, and I was desperate to sleep. I wasn't learning anything. Mm-hmm. And um, she's been an academic her whole life. And so she wanted me to learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it was real easy. When when she's done, she's done and she goes to sleep. And she let me sleep until I woke up on my own. And uh, she had to do that pretty much because if someone else woke me up or my brain was awakened before it was done doing whatever it was processing, then I was pretty irritable. And mm-hmm. again, I wasn't capable of learning. And my mother was very focused on paying attention to what I needed. So she let me sleep and then I would awake and she would would then um, take me to the restroom and give me food. And then at whatever energy I had left over, she would put something into my hands and she would begin uh, processing. And she just took me from being an infant into being a toddler, into being a young child, into being someone more capable of learning and, and nurtured what the brain needed, which is really very different than what traditional neurorehabilitation institutes will do. They will give you medications to make you alert. So you're alert by 7 in the morning and they will keep you alert all day. And frankly, if I had been in that kind of environment, I would have consciously chosen La La Land more often and I would not have recovered the way that I have. Now, when you're going through the the process that you just described is basically mm-hmm. the process of growing up all right. over again. And right. there's a, an emotional component to that. You go through um, an emotional maturing as you grow mm-hmm. up. Is that something that you also had to re-experience to some extent? Well, it was very interesting on the emotional front because the old circuitry that had been been all my whole life um, wanted to come back online. And it was fascinating to me because I didn't like the way certain things felt inside of my body. And by this point, I'm so tuned in to what my body feels like and what things feel like from the external world, What may, essentially what gives me pain and what doesn't give me pain, um, that when anger, when the circuits for anger came back online, I did not like the way that anger felt inside of my body. And so I, I, I did self-analysis and figured out what's at the root of this circuitry. Why do I have this circuitry? And 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 what choices do I have in running it or not running it? And I learned that I don't have to run that circuitry. Hmm. Just because a circuitry comes knocking on my physiology doesn't mean that I have to run it and stick to it. So so what I learned was that circuitry like like anger or sadness uh, or even love or elation, whatever, but any circuit has a physiological component to it. And and you may not be able to. You, so you have an emotional trigger. You get triggered. You think a thought. First, you think a thought. The thought makes me mad. Uh, So then I have an emotional response of anger. And then I have a physiological response of getting big and ugly. Uh, Hair goes up, you know, eyes dilate, everything is like, you start growling, whatever it is. But it only takes 90 seconds. It takes 90 seconds for any emotion to be initiated in your body, run through your body, and flush out of your body. After that 90 seconds, it's a choice as to whether or not you stay hooked into that circuitry. So, so for me, everything became circuitry. I became cells. I became cells communicating with cells and circuits, circuits creating more uh, larger connections of, of networks. And I learned that I had a choice in what circuitry I, d- I did or I did not run. And it was beautiful. It was freeing. It was like all of a sudden I can take total, total responsibility for everything going on inside of my brain, everything coming out of my body, and how freeing is that? All of a sudden you can come at me and you can be hostile and angry and, and you can be just trying to push my triggers and I'm just looking at you with sympathy recognizing that I'm sorry that your circuitry has been triggered, but I don't have to bump up my stuff against your stuff because this is your stuff. So in many ways it, it, was, it was very freeing and very lightning from from a circuitry perspective. Fascinating. Dr. Jill Taylor is our guest today. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. I heard you speak. You talked about the number of cells that we have. Mm -hmm. How many cells do we have in the brain? In the brain about – well, it depends on what kind of cells you're talking about, but approximately one trillion cells. And when you stop and think about one trillion, Bob, can you tell me how many people there are on the planet? 
You're on the spot. Mm, 200 billion. No, I don't know. Six billion. Six billion. About six billion people. <laughs> so you've got six billion people on the planet and a trillion people a trillion cells making up just your nervous system. So you could take all the people on the planet and multiply us all 166 times just to make up the number of living organisms making up the nervous system. Hmm. But we're much more than a nervous system. We are, uh, we've got uh, bone cells to hang that nervous system on, and we've got muscles to move that system around, and we've got all these sensory cells to bring information from the external world to stimulate that nervous system. Uh, so the human body, a, tradi- a typical human adult is made up of 50 trillion cells, 50 trillion cells. That's 8,333 times all the people on the planet. <laughs> Blows my mind. So, so, you, so you, know, you have the choice. And what happened to me was in the left hemisphere, I look at myself as a single. I see myself as a solid. I'm a human. I'm a woman. I, I'm a neuroanatomist. These are my details, blah, blah, blah. To my right hemisphere consciousness, though, I am 50 trillion cells. And each of those cells, every one of those cells stem from that original zygote cell, which contained the DNA to manufacture me, so to metamorphosize itself into what I am. So I look at that cell, that zygote, as a molecular genius. And because the DNA is packaged in every other one of my cells, except for my red blood cells, I see myself as the life force power of 50 trillion molecular geniuses. And that's how I look at the world. That's how I present myself. I have I make that choice. Do I see myself as a single, solid, separate from everyone, or do I recognize that I am the life force power of 50 trillion molecular geniuses? My lifespan time on this planet is limited, whether it's 10 more minutes or another 100 years, whatever it is, it's precious, precious time for me to be in this form, to have this power, to have this dexterity, to be life in this world. And then I ask myself, what am I doing with my power? And I ask everyone, what are you doing with the power of your 50 trillion molecular geniuses? We are these beautiful, incredible life force entities. And it is as though the left hemisphere consciousness of I am single, I am solid, I am separate, I'm small, I, am, I don't have a voice, I am not whatever. And then you have this other alternative. So I choose the consciousness of I am the life force power of 50 trillion. And I love it when I meet others who really own their power like that. <laughs> now, I've mentioned this to you before, yeah. before we went on the air that – you know, I've I've heard you speak before, mm-hmm. and you know we've had we had a meeting at the HT about some mm-hmm. mental health issues, and and I've read a lot of stuff about you. And one thing that seems to come through loud and clear is that that you don't view you know some people or some brains as normal, and other people and other brains as not normal. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's sort of baggage that we mm-hmm. all carry. Could you talk about about that? I mean, a, a brain. There are lots of things about a brain, but mm-hmm. not there isn't a normal brain. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, actually, every brain is normal in uh, its own yeah. way. It's it's interesting. Uh, my neuroanatomy teacher, uh, when I was um, uh, in school, uh, said, you know, if you've got neurons inside of the brain that are creating a circuit, that are creating an outcome, that's normal for that brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's really no behavior that is not normal. So we judge normal based on what does society accept mm-hmm. as normal, and and even in in traditional anatomy gross anatomy, in order for a book to carry something like the anatomy of a heart or something inside of the body as normal, it only has to occur 70 percent of the time. Hmm. So that's only 70 percent. There's that other 30 percent who might have their their hearts who are are different, um, different number of major vessels coming off, or you might have uh, a U-shaped kidney or three kidneys Mm -hmm. or just one kidney, but 70 percent of us have two kidneys, so that's what we teach in our books. So, So really, it's a matter of... Of, of if you are experiencing whatever you are experiencing, there are cells that are capable of creating, manufacturing that ability for you. The old myth that we only use 10% of our brain, frankly, neurons, they thrive when they're stimulated and they die when they're not. I mean, that's just how they are. And they are programmed to do that. So if you've got a brain, if you've got a cell and it's alive in your brain, it's doing something. So just because, you know, I, I don't have any appreciation that I can I can. Uh, look at a a shadow and I can see the difference in the coloring of the shadow. I've got cells inside of my brain that are allowing me that ability. So we have all of these different abilities that are unconscious.
conscious or subconscious, if you will, that have cells that are actually doing that. Then you have some kind of a trauma. You lose those cells. And then all of a sudden you realize, you know, I can't do these kinds of things that I just thought was normal. Well, it is normal because because your brain and my brain have to be virtually identical in the way they're wired in order for us to share enough common reality that we can communicate with one another. And we, we go out into the, the ranges of abnormal when your reality doesn't match up enough with my reality that we can communicate. And sometimes this will happen with aging. You have to ask in the aging process, you know, how much, how much shifting in, in our common reality has this person now gained in order for me to say, okay, this person's no longer normal. And then also, are there medications that can help the neural circuitry? Because medications are all about shifting the, what those cells are doing, who's communicating with who, with what chemicals, in what quantities of those chemicals in order for them to produce a, a, a perception. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're all normal. We are in yeah. our own way. <laughs> right, right. Okay, I've got two phone calls. You know the other side of that, Bob. And, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to Wendy. Wendy? Hi. Um, I have a couple questions. And the first one is, after you grew up again post-stroke, did your previous knowledge from your studies and professional experience kind of get unlocked from your brain? Um, well, that, that's wonderful. Actually, um, some of it did, and I think some of it did not. You know, people ask me how much of my past do I now remember, and I have to say, well, how much of your life do you remember when you were 10? And I don't remember that much when I was 10, so it's really hard for me to, to know that. However, I do realize that there are things that I do know now that no one has retaught me. And um, academically, the interesting thing was, although I lost the left hemisphere, which was the the language and the details, I still retained the right hemisphere consciousness, which was pictures. Mm -hmm. And my area of expertise is anatomy, which is a visual art. Mm -hmm. So I retained the three-dimensional perception of the body, how all the organs work, everything that's going on. I just didn't know what to call any of it, and I didn't – so I didn't have any of the language. So for me, when I went back to school to learn, when I went back and, and taught myself, what I really had to do was apply terminology and regain the, the, the fluency of the language. Hmm. Yeah, so there's a, and you would have like a kinesthetic knowledge as well. Exactly. Proprioceptic oh, or whatever that term yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. When I, when I teach now, um, I always teach with, with two big screens behind me. One is with pictures because I want my kids to get a picture of what I'm talking about, a visual. And then the other screen is my notes. It's the language. So when I teach a classroom, I give them both of that because I know that that's how their brains, whatever, however they learn best, I'm giving them all the tools that they can. At the same time, I then have labs, and we go into the labs, and we, we play with the brains, or we, we work in gross anatomy. Well, Bob, it's just fun. It's just fun, fun, fun. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. So, But it's kinesthetic, exactly. So so it's, uh, I believe in whatever it takes to get the information into the brain so that the brain can get it from a different perspective and then retain that information so that it can then um, uh, regurgitate that verbally as well as having a visual picture uh, is the best way to learn. Well, that's great. And I'm an art teacher, and so this is a great plug for the essential Beautiful. <laughs> need to teach art to kids from early development all the way up. Oh, absolutely. And the other question I have is, um, in some people who are very emotional, is that a brain structural thing? And is it common that when your emotions take over, they can cloud your rational thought? Well, you know, you, you they are different circuits. And and the so you have to look at each person as a group of cells and the circuitry that that particular brain has and and what what you focus on, the circuitry that you run more often has a tendency to run itself with less incoming stimulation from the outside. It's called reverberating circuitry. So the more angry I allow myself to be, then the simpler it is for me to get e- get angry just because that circuit is so healthy and strong and, and ready to go. It's just primed mm-hmm. up and ready to go. So, so we do have choices. Um, you have to be willing to get away from, first of all, recognize that it's circuitry. I don't have to feel anger. I don't have to feel hostility. I don't have to feel anything. 
thing. And I can come right back to the present moment with my conscious mind that says, take a new picture. And in this moment, I am not being attacked or I'm not going on defense and, and I'm fine in this moment. I got angry because of something that happened in the past. And so I can think those thoughts and rethink those thoughts and rerun that circuitry, but that's a choice. I don't have to do it. I always have the choice of coming back to the right here, right now experience of the present moment. And the best way to do that is to focus on your sensory stimulation in order to realize this is a new moment. And I don't have to be consumed by that emotional uh, circuitry. Well, this this should be very helpful to everybody. And I'm hoping that we'll figure out some good ways to apply this to children Excellent. and how they function. Thank you so All much. Right, Wendy. Thanks, Wendy. Thank, thanks a lot for the call. We've got about four minutes to go in the program. I know we've got one call and one email at least. So, mm-hmm. so Steve, go ahead. Nope, we lost Steve. So we'll go to the email. Okay. It says, my brother experienced a severe TBI mm-hmm. and has undergone speech, physical, and occupational therapy followed by neurobiofeedback. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with neurobiofeedback and do you support that treatment after a TBI? I think that uh, after a TBI, essentially all the cells are stunned and shocked and no longer communicating in their normal circuitry. Any form of rehabilitation that you would choose is the real question is what is it doing to the environment of the cells and is it helping those cells create new healthy connections in order to recover function? So um, I'm a believer in, um, in each individual pursuing whatever avenues they need in order to find relief. Um, lots of questions about TBI and hyperbaric oxygen is uh, another one, which I personally find very exciting because with hyperbaric oxygen, uh, studies show that you can increase the vascularization going on to those neurons. And if you have neurons that are struggling in order to get oxygen and all of a sudden you give them more, then aren't they going to perform better? So I'm looking forward to people doing hardcore science on really what is going on with these different TBI uh, types of neurorehabilitation options. But I'm a believer in trying everything. And if your brother thinks that this is helping him, then it's helping him. And just because it can't be measured really to me doesn't mean anything because there are too many things inside of my own mind that if I hadn't done it when I knew that I was making new connections, then I wouldn't be where I am today. So so I encourage your brother to, to try a variety of different things. Okay. Steve is back. Okay. So let's go, to, let's go to Steve. Thanks for coming back, Steve. Oh, thank you. Sure. Uh, Jill, thanks for sharing your experience. Um, there was something you said that struck me as being enormously important, and that's that after 90 seconds, any emotion emotion will play itself out, Mm -hmm. and after that, there's a choice. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, you you answered part of my question with the previous caller, but um, this reminds me of something in Buddhist psychology Mm -hmm. where they say if you just... You, you can observe an, an emotion arise, mm-hmm. and just if you just observe it and mm-hmm. don't grasp it, mm-hmm. it will disappear. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is important, I think, for the whole world. I mean, mm-hmm. there are wars going on all over the world because people are angry about things that happened years ago. Right. And uh, I was wondering if, if there's anything, any other techniques besides meditation um, that can help me and other people get over things you know, I'm I'm angry about things that happened 10 years ago, hmm. and I'd like to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds. Okay. I would say uh, get my book. <laughs> okay, the, the second to last chapter is all about exactly this. How do I get myself out of the left hemisphere and into the consciousness of the right hemisphere? And I, I, use, I, I structure it based on the normal neurocircuitry of the body and the brain so that how can I utilize what I am in order to be what I want to become? All right. Hope that's good, Steve. Yes, thank you. Okay. We had an email that we couldn't get to, but I will pass it along to Dr. Jill. All right. Jill, thanks for being here with us today. I hope you'll come back. Thanks. I had a great time. All right. The, the name of the book is My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey. Dr. Jill Taylor. Uh, thank you to Mary Catherine Carmichael for being here today and producer Catherine Hageman and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.